Well, good morning. Good to see you all. We're going to actually camp out just a couple of chapters before uh, the section we just read in Isaiah. But today is the third Sunday in Lent, this 40-day season of repentance and fasting as we are symbolically journeying with Jesus to the cross. As many of you know by this point, this year we are spending the Lenten season exploring both the wonderful and some of the quite awful realities of the cross. Considering what this event accomplishes and what it means for those of us who follow Jesus. We're calling this series Journey to the Cross and each week we are exploring some different themes and some of the various language that is used by the biblical authors to help us make sense of the death of Jesus and begin to conceptualize exactly what took place in the cross. Before we get into this, I'd like to thank Austin for his treatment last week of blood sacrifice and atonement, which was quite a tall task in 25 minutes. One of my favorite pastimes is asking Austin to treat really difficult topics in a very short amount of time. But in my defense, it is difficult to adequately treat any of the themes we are considering during Lent in a mere 25 minutes. However, we must try, because it is, in fact, impossible to speak of Christianity apart from the cross. Without the cross, we are no longer the Church of Jesus Christ. It is central to our identity. This is why we find Paul in 1 Corinthians saying, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus and him crucified. So clearly in the cross, there is something more fundamental going on than just happenstance. That there's something more than just, well, this is the natural outcome of what would happen if a genuinely good and perfect person ever lived, as I think it was Plato who suggested. So we are spending six weeks talking about these issues, thinking about and meditating on the cross. We are under no illusion that we will adequately examine all of the wonderful truths of the cross in a mere six weeks, but... We do want to try to consider the multiplicity of voices, the varied language that we find in our Bible, the many images and metaphors that are used by the biblical authors to describe the indescribable, to help us understand the great mystery of the cross, and it is a great mystery, what the death of Jesus on the cross might mean for us. So the cross is central to who we are as followers of Jesus. We have established that, but what is it all about? And is there anything in any sense that is objective that is accomplished in the death of Jesus? And why is it so grotesque? Is that necessary? Why is it so brutal and barbaric? We started that conversation a little bit last week by thinking about blood sacrifice, and we will now follow up on last week's treatment of that topic. Today, we turn our attention to the ugly nature of the cross. You know, throughout most of high school, I was interested in pursuing a career in sports medicine. Clearly, I didn't because I'm up here now, but I was interested in pursuing that career path until I realized, I guess, a couple of things. Number one, I didn't really have the resolve to to go down that path in the, the medical field, and 
I also, though, realized and had to come to terms with the fact that I can't handle seeing blood. So clearly that was not the, the career path for me. I just can't do it. I, I hate watching gruesome injuries. I have friends, some maybe in this room, I won't mention names, but I have friends who can watch gruesome clips of sports injuries on repeat, even slow it down into slow motion and watch it dozens of times. That, that's insane to me. That, that is not me. I, I get lightheaded. I, I stop thinking clearly. It's just not an ideal situation. I don't like blood. In fact, gratuitous violence and gore in film is typically going to be a deal breaker for me. I'm just not interested in seeing it. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, I think many people, especially in our highly sanitized cultural moment in time, many people are repulsed by blood. But despite my hesitancy in thinking about some of these brutal and grotesque scenes, this is something I think we need to slow down and consider this morning because it is a part of what we find in the cross of Jesus Christ. I was a college student when Mel Gibson's, I guess we're just tracing my career, uh, my educational path. <laughs> High school, now college. I was a college student when Mel Gibson's famous film was released, or infamous, I guess, depending on who you ask. The film, The Passion of the Christ. I'm sure many of you have seen it. And it's a film that desperately attempted to capture some of the horror of the cross. Essentially, though, in my view at least, it just resorted to sensational violence and gore with, without, in my view, really capturing the truly horrific nature of the cross. This is why I say that, because it wasn't just the physical pain associated with the cross that makes this such an awful reality. There's much more involved in this form of execution in the first century world that makes it a horrific shameful form of death. Crucifixion was not like other forms of execution. In fact, the cross in the first century world became a symbol of shame. It became a symbol even of terror in the Roman world. It's difficult for us to find a modern equivalent. Many have suggested that perhaps the electric chair or the noose, which in our country's history was used a lot for racially motivated murder, Maybe those could be the closest parallels we could find. And if we allow our minds to go down that path, j just think about those symbols for a moment. And think about the, if those symbols became venerated or cherished, and you begin to see the absurdity in the fact that we have crosses around this room today. This may come as a surprise, but this form of capital punishment was not at all rare. The Romans utilized this method of death for a couple of hundred years before Jesus. They, they continued using it after Jesus lived and died. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were killed by crucifixion in the Roman Empire. In fact, we find some historical accounts that tell of single days when up to 2,000 individuals were executed in this manner. It was an instrument of terror. And it was used not only for practical purposes to eradicate certain people, but it was also used to instill fear in those who witnessed it. 
and it was used only for the lowest of the low. Roman citizens were exempt, typically, from this form of execution. In fact, if you had any social capital at all, crucifixion was probably not going to be in your future. But those who didn't, for those who were at the bottom of society, this was a clear message that was being sent by the empire to all undesirables. You better fall in line. You better do and live how we tell you to live. If you get out of line, this is going to be your fate. And it was a very effective tool towards those end, precisely because it was very public in nature. The public nature of crucifixion was not just done out of convenience, but it was public intentionally in order to communicate, look, these criminals that we are killing right now are subhuman. So you better watch yourself. If you find yourself in that position socially and you don't stay in line, we as the empire have the power to eradicate any and all undesirables. Now, we're not going to spend time this morning, this morning delineating all of the specifics of the scourging or the psychological torture involved or the physical pain associated with being nailed to a cross and having that crown of thorns dig into the scalp. Suffice it to say, as New Testament scholar Joel Green sums it up, he said, executed publicly, situated at a major crossroads or on a well-trafficked artery, devoid of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts, Victims of crucifixion were subject to optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule. The shame of the cross. Artists throughout history have attempted to depict some of the utter humiliation, the pain and the shame associated with the cross, but how can you really capture the dread associated with hanging there on a tree, in public, naked, sometimes for days until you died by asphyxiation, derided by everybody who saw you because it, again, was a very public occasion. And yet we as Christians call the day on which Jesus was crucified Good Friday. How can that be? How in the world can something so horrific, unpalatable, something stomach-turning like crucifixion, how can that gruesome scene be good in any way that is meaningful? And this is where we begin to bump into one of the great paradoxes of the cross. It is an absolutely shameful scene, a tool that was explicitly used as an instrument of shame, so shame and humiliation are not just byproducts of this form of death, but they are at the core of crucifixion. And yet the cross is a symbol that we cling to for hope. We have many crosses displayed around this room. You can just look and see those. Some of you may have a cross hanging around your neck on a necklace, or maybe you make the sign of the cross with your hand, maybe when you enter a sanctuary or as you come forward before you receive the Eucharist, making the sign of the cross as an embodied habit habitual action to remind yourself 
of your devotion to Jesus Christ. And so for us, what was meant as an instrument of shame and what undeniably represents unbelievable physical, emotional, and spiritual pain is for us a source of joy and comfort. How in the world is that possible? How could, the, the early church origin described the crucifixion in this way. He said it was the utterly vile death of the cross. Utterly vile death of the cross. And we rejoice at that? Doesn't make sense. So to begin seeing how something so horrific and shameful can for us turn into joy, I'd like to take our attention back to Isaiah, beginning in chapter 52. In this well-known passage, begins at the end of chapter 52 and then goes into chapter 53, where the prophet Isaiah is speaking about the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant. This is a passage that the early church, pretty much from the beginning, saw in the light of the significance of the crucifixion of Jesus. In verse 14 of chapter 52, Isaiah says this of that servant. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and in his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Then if you jump down to the next chapter in the middle of verse 2 of chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So thinking about this text from Isaiah 52 and 53, remember our conversation two weeks ago when we started this series in Lent and we started by focusing on the glory of God and argued that the glory of God is most clearly seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. A great paradox, to be sure. We we suggested that the beauty, the perceivable otherness, the holiness, the infinite beauty of our God is seen in Jesus Christ on the cross But Isaiah here in this passage, again a passage that Paul relates to Jesus Christ, a a section from Isaiah that the early church from the beginning saw in the light of Jesus Christ, Isaiah says, no majesty. When we look at him, no beauty. Nothing desirable to look at, despised, rejected. In this passage we find terms like sorrow, grief stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed. These don't sound like words that point us in the direction of glory. The image of Jesus on the cross is not a pretty one at all. I think it should cause some discomfort. It 
should lead us to somber reflection, and I don't think we want to rush past that, especially during the season of Lent. You know, that great passage from Philippians 2, a section that we often consider during the Christmas season where Paul urges humility from his audience by pointing to the self-emptying love of Christ who lays aside his divinity, who though he was God, takes the form of a servant, born in human likeness. But Paul goes on in verse 8 to say, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. But that's not it. Even death on a cross. So the reproach of the cross is is made clear implicitly in this statement by Paul. Not only does Jesus humble himself to the point of death, but death on a cross. It is the lowest form of death imaginable. It's the idea that we couldn't conceive of a more humiliating or scandalous death. And again, it can be difficult for us to grasp that shame because the cross has become so sentimental and such a cherished religious symbol that brings us joy. But in the first century, it wasn't the case. Galatians chapter 5, we see Paul refer to the cross by discussing the scandal of the cross or the offense of the cross. In 1 Corinthians, it was a stumbling block to Jews. It was foolishness to Gentiles. It was shameful, and it was a scandal that Jesus should die on the cross. Theologian Fleming Rutledge notes that often we think that it's the death of Christ itself that is such a scandal, and to a certain degree that is true, but what was truly shameful and disgraceful was the means of his death. Not just that Jesus died, but how he died. It's important, and it's important for our reflection, at least because it shows us a picture of who God is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a prisoner in Nazi Germany, and as you may know, was ultimately executed. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he suggests this. He said, God lets himself be pushed out of the world on the cross. Lets himself be pushed out of the world on the cross. Christ is weak and powerless in the world. And that is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. He says, Matthew 8.17 makes it quite clear. If you remember that passage where Matthew is referring back to the Hebrew prophet Isaiah and saying that this servant took illness and bore our disease, and that is where we find redemption. Bonhoeffer says, Matthew 8.17 makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. He goes on to say that is a reversal of what the religious man expects from God. And man is summoned to share in God's sufferings at the hands of a godless world. As we mentioned previously, many were crucified in the first century under Roman rule. So it is not at all shocking that somebody named Jesus in Jerusalem in the first century was executed by crucifixion. What's truly shocking, though, is that a movement that continues to this day 
A faith that we are a part of would continue even after their leader was humiliated to this degree. The second century church father, Melito of Sardis, in a, a, the context of a discourse in which he refers to the event of the cross as the murder of God, he said this, Oh, unprecedented murder unprecedented crime, the sovereign has been made unrecognizable by his naked body and is not even allowed a garment to keep him from view. That is why the luminaries turned away and the day was darkened so that he might hide the one stripped bare upon the tree, darkening not the body of the Lord but the eyes of men. The shame of the cross. As Protestants, we typically almost exclusively depict the cross empty, right? This is one of the contrasts between our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. The, the article that they venerate is a, a crucifix, where Jesus is depicted on the cross. Typically, our crosses are empty. God is not hanging on the tree. And the argument is made, and I think it's a legitimate argument, that, well, this tradition continues because Jesus did not stay on the cross, but I think one of the negative side effects of that move is that it has caused us to neglect focused reflection on the suffering of Jesus. And if the suffering of our God on the cross is significant, it is surely worthy of our reflection. I think focused reflection on the shame-covered, naked body of Jesus Christ on the cross will impact us at a deep level. I mean, if you actually picture that, however grotesque, however shameful and uncomfortable of, a, of an experience that that might be, it leaves us changed because we begin to see the character and the nature of our God in a new light. God hanging on the cross, exposed to utter shame and condemnation. So this is the great paradox of the crucifixion. An event so shameful, so disgraceful, so God-forsaken, and it is for us the basis of everything we do. As Paul said, Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified, that's it. This is central to our faith. A horrific scandal a bloody scene, public execution, nakedness, brutality. It's shame upon shame upon shame. And yet that symbol of terror, that symbol of stigma has become for us a symbol of salvation and one that as we reflect on it leads to increased devotion because on one hand it at least represents the lengths to which Jesus Christ willingly went to to restore the world, to rescue humanity, and to overcome darkness. And it's those themes that we will turn to throughout the rest of this series over the next three weeks. But because of the shame of the cross, this paradox, shame and glory in the same event. We are able to now sing, as we will in just a few moments, when I survey the wondrous cross. That seems like an absurd statement. Oh, the wonderful cross. Not, not because the cross is sentimental, 
Not because the cross is wonderful in and of itself in any way, shape, or form. It is not. It is a symbol of terror and shame, a form of brutal execution. But this has become wonderful for us because of what it reminds us of and what it tells us about the nature of our God. There are hundreds of thousands, probably millions, of depictions of the cross of Jesus Christ. Many have said it is the most frequently depicted scene from human history. But the question we ask is, well, what do we hope to accomplish in reflecting on the horrors of the cross? What is the point of spending so much time, especially for somebody like me who is repulsed by blood and gore, what is the point in spending time reflecting on the degradation and the dehumanization intrinsic in the act of crucifixion? Because since the beginning of the church, the church has believed that this particular form of execution, that the utter shame involved, it matters. That this is not just some tangential element of the story of the crucifixion. It's not just coincidental, but it means something for us because it's communicating something to us about our God. So why is the shame, the degradation, the dehumanization of the cross important? I want to make just a couple of simple suggestions. As we reflect on the shame and ugliness of the cross and face it honestly, however uncomfortable that experience is, we are reminded first and foremost of the ugliness of human sin, the ugliness of evil that would go to those lengths to, as Melito of Sardis said, murder God. We're reminded of the ugliness of human sin. We will deal with that idea in much more detail next week. We are also reminded in the ugliness of the cross of the depth of Christ's identification with us. We get a clear picture of the depth of Christ's sharing in our pain with us. How, how can we see the cross? How can we see and look and reflect on the shame of the cross and not be comforted by the fact that our Lord understands everything we experience? Have you felt physical pain? Is your body broken by illness or an injury or disease? Our Lord understands. Have you been abused? Have you felt shame? Have you been abandoned? Or betrayed? Or mocked? Our, our Lord, our God, what we believe Jesus is God, our God hanging on the cross understands. Have you felt spiritual and emotional darkness at a very deep level? Maybe even now? Our God hanging on a cross understands. As the author of Hebrews tells us, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us because he too has been human and endured everything we can endure. He has endured temptation. He has endured trial. He has endured great pain and darkness. Our Lord understands. And we get a very clear picture of that in the shame and dehumanization of his cross. When we think 
of the cross as a stumbling block or as an offense. This is it. Our goal in going over these details is not to sensationalize this event, but rather to understand the depth of Christ's love, to understand the depth of his willingness to endure great difficulty, to be with us. We reflect on it so we can see the utter beauty of our God in a fresh light and the significance of what is occurring in this event. Fleming Rutledge argues that there is a correspondence between the horrors of the crucifixion on one hand and the nature of sin that is being unleashed, fully unleashed in and through these events, precisely as sin is being overcome in the torments of our Savior. Or, or to put it another way, as the, the Cappadocian father Gregory of Nazianzus said, what has not been assumed has not been healed. What has not been assumed has not been healed. In other words, what has been assumed has been healed. In Jesus Christ, in the death of Jesus Christ, we find healing for everything that plagues the human race. Kevin, if you all want to come up. But we're going to continue this conversation next week as we consider the cross of Jesus Christ as the response to evil, the response to sin, we will explore the concept and the language of wrath that we find and see what our scriptures teach us about that. But for now, if you want to stand, we are going to continue this time of reflection, reflecting on the shame and the degradation intrinsic in the cross. And as we come to the table this morning to share in the Eucharist, I would encourage you to take your minds to the shame Jesus experienced. The fact that Jesus Christ willingly assumed the torment and the torture that was reserved for the lowest of the low. A form of execution that was reserved for the undesirables in Roman society. And we find a powerful message in that simple fact that Jesus identifies with the lowest of the low, even you and I. Find great comfort in that this morning. By way of invitation to the table, I'd like to say a prayer for us. If you're new or visiting, we invite you to celebrate with us this morning. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. There will be people here to hand you the elements, and you can take those on your own. The words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, whose blessed Son gave his back to be whipped and did not hide his face from shame and spitting, give us grace to accept joyfully the sufferings of the present time, confident of the glory that shall be revealed. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.